Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement, and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. I think part of it is because everybody's telling this part of the country what they need instead of listening to what they need. There are parts of what you just said that I really strongly agree with and parts that I disagree with. The disagreement for me comes in identifying corporate America as the sole problem. I think it has been a huge part of it or even the leading part of the problem. Because, for example, I don't think AT&T has screwed the state of Kentucky over. I think the partnership that we developed with AT&T to get Internet in all of our schools has worked really well. I think corporate America has many times exploited these regions. I also think that they have to be part of the solution. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Today is the day. It's a big day for Pantsuit Politics. We are kicking off our annual Patreon drive. Dylan, please insert celebratory music here. Or so, like, yay! So every year, we reach out to our community and say, if you are able, please support Pantsuit Politics. We are largely listener-supported, and we're going to tell you in a lot more detail than we usually do this year about what that has meant to the growth of the community and what it has meant to our own personal lives. But before we start that, we wanted to share some of the exciting changes to our Patreon levels and bonuses coming this year. I'm so excited about this. 
One of the things that we hear in feedback frequently is that people wish there was more content available at the smaller level donations. And so between now and the 2020 election, I am going to dedicate Thursdays on the Nightly Nuance to election coverage. All things 2020 will be on Thursdays, and we are now going to make that Thursday episode of the Nightly Nuance available to patrons starting at the $5 level. So that means you get about a 7 to 10 minute podcast every Thursday in addition to everything else that you get during the rest of the week from us that is focused on 2020. I think we need to be real that I will often join this and it will be longer than seven minutes if I do because I have big feelings about all these things and I need another outlet. Well, I think that's great. So that will be one of the new features. Sarah, would you like to tell everybody about the other exciting new features? Because I feel like there's one in particular that really checks a lot of boxes for you personally. So we'll be maintaining the $15 level. You'll get an extra bonus episode every month. We will keep the $25 for Beth's Nightly Nuance. And we thought a lot about this, guys, but it's just a lot of work to for her to produce those four episodes every week. So we're going to keep the four episodes at the $25 level because I think it's such a high-value proposition to get all that research and Beth's nuance in your ears every night. But the big change I'm so excited about is we're going to start a culture club at the $50 and the $100 level. Okay. So I love recommending things. It is. It brings me such joy. You know how I get about things. You know how I want to force people to read everything that I think is exciting. And now this is my opportunity. Okay, I'm not going to force you. But if you support us at this level, at $50, we will ship you our latest cultural recommendation in June and December. If you're at $100, an executive producer level, you'll get it in March, June, October, and December. So, for example, right now, what would I send you? I would send you Michael Pollan's book about psychedelics. (laughs) That lures people to this level. But the idea is that there's so often there's just something we're so excited to share, either a product or a book or a movie or music. And we want to be able to physically put it in our supporters' hands. And we thought this would be a really fun way to stay in contact and connect at those higher levels. And so if you are brand new to supporting us on Patreon, you will also get some Pantsu Politics earbuds. You will get our eternal gratitude. If you are <laughs> upscribing on Patreon, thank you so much. We hope that these new incentives are something that get you excited about that. And we have some group goals, okay, because we believe ooh, in community ooh. here. That's right. So if we get to 750 supporters total on Patreon, we are going to go to Iowa for the caucuses and New Hampshire for the first in the nation primary to produce special episodes that bring you coverage from the ground of those events, which we think would be so exciting and would just lend a new perspective on how elections happen in the United States based on the way that we approach these events. And if we get to 1,000 subscribers... This is a big one, you guys. We're going to do a five-city mini-tour. Public events, open to y'all because you constantly email and ask us to come. And here's the big one. We're going to select one patron at random to pick the fifth city we go to. So if we get to 1,000 patrons, we're going to pick one of those names, and that person gets to pick where we go inside the continental U.S., obviously. So I think that'll be A really fun way to put together a tour. We're really excited about this idea because we do want to add 
more public events where all of you guys can come. But it takes a lot of resources and it takes a lot of time. So I think this is a really good way to get there. So Sarah mentioned that we've thought a lot about how we price these bonus levels and about just where we've come from when we started Pantsy Politics. We started as a hobby. It was something that we did very late at night most of the time after our kids went to bed. Our husbands helped us do the audio engineering. I sat on the floor in my closet for most of the first episodes that we produced. And we really struggled to do any interviews. We struggled to do research-intensive episodes. As we've done the survey, we've learned that so many of you love the primers, the five things to know about this combined with an, an opinion episode. We love those too. That takes an incredible amount of time. The Nightly Nuance takes an incredible amount of time. The, the work that we do just takes a lot of time. And so Patreon has been a way for the two of us to devote that time to thoughtfully planning episodes. The other big part of where we started, and you you will know this if you've read our book, when we started, it was because we wanted to listen to each other. But I think there was a big part of both of us who didn't know if anybody else wanted to hear what we had to say. And when I look back at those first months of producing Paint Suit Politics, you know, so much of it and and still so much of it remains that I love talking to Beth and hearing what Beth has to say. But I have to say that, you know, one of the best surprises of this entire journey is that all of you are so interested in what we have to say. And having you reach out and say, I'm here, I'm listening. It's so important. It brings so much value to my life that I want to give back. It's been such a gift and not just a gift financially that's allowed us to professionalize and organize our lives around this work we do on the podcast, which we're going to talk about more in the the next few weeks over the drive. But I mean, psychologically, I mean, I think spiritually, emotionally, pushing us on a journey where it didn't feel just like a side hustle. It didn't feel like we were imposters. It was all of you saying, hey, this is valuable. Let us show you. It's really valuable what you're doing. It's almost difficult to put into words what all that meant and how that changed my perception of myself and the work we do here at Pansy Politics. And the reason that your support is so important, I was just putting this into words for someone the other day in a different way than I ever had before. We are not beholden to anyone in a space where everyone is beholden to someone. Because mm-hmm. Pansy Politics is completely independent We're able to show up here with just our opinions driving the conversation, even when we know those opinions are going to be hard to hear or unpopular or they deviate so far from any kind of party line or just or they're about psychedelics. (laughs) We are able to do what we do the way that we do it because of your dollars supporting this work. There is no one else behind us. Our ad network does not influence our content at all. This is really all your support, and we feel that we are accountable to this community, and that's it. So we hope that you will go over to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics and become part of this work. We thank you so much for your time and your attention and your investment in this community. And now we are going to dive in to our episode. We're going to start with a little round-the-world tour. We're going to talk about rural America in the main segment. We have some very interesting stories to share about rural America, and we'll end, as we always do, with what's going on outside of politics. First up is China. Uh, You might have heard of them. They're a global superpower that we are currently engaged in a trade war with. 
I feel like with this conversation and also the conversation about Congress and the president, like we're just in this sort of stalemate which is almost a little more anxiety-producing than constant escalation. You know what I mean? Like, there is escalation in this trade war, but the negotiations I don't feel like are getting anywhere despite the escalation. And so it's just – it's really anxiety-producing for me every time I read about this situation with China. I think I would feel that way less if I understood the clear goal. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this in connection with Iran as well, which we're going to talk about in a second. I understand when President Trump says he wants a better deal, but I don't know what that means. I don't know what mm-hmm. a better deal consists of. Tom Cotton is taking a beating on Twitter as we sit down to record today because he said on national television this morning that the sacrifice Americans have to make with higher prices related to tariffs is nothing compared to what our service members put on the line overseas. Well, I mean, that's true, but I don't understand what we're sacrificing <laughs> for. You know, what? what is the goal of this conflict with China? If I understood that, I would have a better, I think, willingness and patience for the fact that, yes, pushing for things often requires sacrifice. I, I totally believe that there are probably benefits to Americans of us having to step back and say, wow, we don't pay very much for food at all. Maybe we should pay more for our food. Maybe there are good reasons to not do some of the trade that we do with China. Okay, let's talk about that. I understand that sacrifice is required in international relations. I just would like to better understand what we're trying to get from this particular conflict, and I don't. I mean, do you think he knows what we're trying to get from this particular conflict? I'm not sure he does. I I don't know. I mean, I, I keep hearing the same language from the White House, but it always feels very vague to me. Well, I thought it was interesting that he keeps perpetuating the lie that it is China that pays for all these tariffs. And it was interesting to hear his own advisors say, well, there will be pain on both sides. It's not really accurate that we there will be no cost for this. But I think you're totally right. This is a pattern of behavior. In fact, put a pin in it because I have some thoughts on a very similar approach when we talk about infrastructure in rural America. I think this happens a lot with government, which is nobody wants to be honest with the public about the cost of any policy changes. They want to sell it instead of really do the hard work to convince people. You know what I mean? I do. And I think that is very relevant to what we're going to talk about with rural America. The other thing I wanted to say about this story, there's a lot of writing about like, when is the Trump voter going to get sick of this? Because a lot of the people being hit hardest by these tariffs are people who in overwhelming numbers support the president. And it reminds me of something that I say when I teach leadership a lot. I tell people who especially are new in leadership roles, What you actually say and do matters so much less than what people believe your intention is. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is why the president rightly believes that his base will go with him on this because they believe in his intention. Where I'm saying, what's the goal? They don't have that question. They trust him that he has this goal and that he's working toward it. And I just think it's really interesting to watch how far that can be pushed in a situation where the pain is becoming really obvious. I mean, I'm of two minds. I think that you're right. The trust is so strong. I also think that trust has not been tested in a tough economic environment. And I do believe that that is an incredibly important 
factor in any conversation about political strategy or political support or the political future of a president or a candidate. You know, I always think about the statistic that three months after 9-11, the number one concern of Americans was the economy. I think you can't underestimate how quickly that economic pressure can translate into a shift in support. But I mean, I think right now you're right that it is he is right to assume that it is particularly strong and they will stick with him. I don't know, like I said, how strong it is because it's really he's never tested that support in a tough economic environment. I think that's a great point. Let's talk about Iran for a second. Iran has announced that it has not gotten the benefit of its bargain, basically. It Mm -hmm. entered into the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with the United States and a number of countries from around the globe. The United States pulled out. Everybody else stayed in. The United States is ratcheting up pressure, including sanctions on countries that do business with Iran. And so Iran says, you know what? We're going to start rolling back our commitments as well. Additionally, we told you last week that the United States had put some military ships into the Middle East as part of kind of some escalation of this conflict. And an Iranian Revolutionary Guard official said that these ships are targets, not threats. Now, the U.S. military is saying, if you've seen that reported but not this piece, I want to be sure to say that the U.S. military seems confident that despite that rhetoric and the media reports, this is not ramping up at the pace or intensity that's being described. And I hope that that's correct. I kind of understand where Rouhani is coming from on this, which is not Mm -hmm. something I say very often. I can imagine that doing the JCPOA initially in Iran was as complicated as it was on the U.S. side, maybe even more so. And when you're you're just getting your kind of face rubbed in it by the United States, what are you supposed to do? Mm -hmm. And I thought the coverage from The Daily yesterday on Monday was really interesting. They talked about John Bolton's motivations for escalating this conflict, increasing the sanctions, coming down on allies that do any business with Iran. And then it's just this economic approach to regime change from within. Everybody, even John Bolton, knows that Americans would not likely support a regime change like we did in Iraq. It's not even available to us, really. It's a different country and the military realities there are different. But I thought what was so interesting was Iran basically (laughs) taking this strategy of we're just going to wait it out. We think he'll be a one-term president. But it's like they're making it impossible for them to take this sort of wait-and-see moderate approach by dialing it up and dialing it up and dialing it up under the, the philosophy that the only likely outcome is that the people of Iran will rise up and overthrow their leadership when there in reality is an entire universe of outcomes That could happen from the increase of this pressure, including further destabilizing the region. So, I I mean, I get it. I I understand John Bolton's frustration with the fact that he feels Iran is a major player in funding terrorist groups. I'm not sure I agree with his total assessment. But the idea that coming down like a hammer can only result in regime change and not other negative consequences to me is... Silly. That's my concern. And look, I am guilty of a lot of the philosophy that has caused us to make terrible decisions like the one we made in Iraq. I have fallen into the thinking that democracy is always good and is always Mm -hmm. preferable. The step that I think I've never articulated for myself, really until I've started thinking more about John Bolton's strategy here, I think we assume implicitly 
that democratic countries will be friends of the United States. Mm-hmm. Let's play out John Bolton's strategy. Okay, so we make the people of Iran suffer so greatly from this economic pressure that we're applying that they are moved to take the dramatic action of overthrowing their government. And in Iran, that's really complex because you have kind of the military and sort of the religious aspects of the government, and then you have the president. Iran's government is not this simplistic, you get rid of this one guy and everything's different, right? So let's say we get to the point where the people have overthrown the entire structure and they decide we are going to be a Western-style democracy here in Iran. What do we think the voters in that Western-style Iranian democracy are going to feel about the United States if Mm -hmm. we have put them through so much pain that they've taken this dramatic action? And this dramatic action that would undoubtedly kill lots of Iranian civilians, Mm -hmm. that would undoubtedly further cripple their economy and their infrastructure. I think I understand John Bolton's starting point, but his ending point to me seems to be almost dramatically worse than trying to work with what exists today especially given that Rouhani came to the table for these negotiations in the first place and by all Mm -hmm. accounts was complying with his commitments until we pulled out. No, I totally agree. Other reporting from the Middle East that we just want to mention because it's all over the news, Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates say that some of their oil tankers have been sabotaged. It is unclear whether these are separate or distinct or related incidents at the time that we're reporting. There is some suspicion that Iranian-backed groups are involved here, but the information is really sketchy. So we can't tell you a lot about that, but just want to acknowledge it because it is affecting our Secretary of State's time and course of action. Speaking of our Secretary of State, he's on his way to meet with Putin in Russia this week. And this meeting is taking place as the misinformation campaigns that Russia is launching across Europe during really important elections seem to be increasing in number. They're spreading disinformation about And helping far-right groups within the election, I was listening to some RT reporting that they were sharing where they were basically (laughs) trying to say that parliamentary elections don't matter, that parliament can't do anything, they can't introduce any legislation, just lying about the basic system in Britain in an effort to undermine the elections and to push these far-right groups to the front. The disinformation campaign includes, it's very wide-ranging. It includes conspiracy theories about the Notre Dame fire. Oh, oh, that's going to be prolific. There's going to be a lot of those for sure. It includes very far-right political messaging embedded in stories that seem like they're about sports and lifestyle. There is a manipulated photo circulating of a candidate giving a Hitler salute. Russia says that this is all paranoid nonsense. It's being accused of influencing these elections before they've even been held. How ridiculous is that? Daniel Jones of Advanced Democracy, he's a former FBI agent, was quoted in the New York Times as saying that Russia is really just working to destroy everything that was built post-World War II. The point is the chaos of this. The point is not knowing what is true. The point is there's a fire at Notre Dame. Let's think of all of the people who could be behind that. Well, and because that's an event, you know, conspiracy theories flourish in environments where people have difficulty making sense of an event. And I think the fire at Notre Dame is so rife for that kind of psychological manipulation. 
So the Petri dish of disinformation, Facebook, has Mm. a new hub in Dublin working in advance of the European elections to try to deal with this problem. They have removed, this blew my mind, 2.8 billion, with a B, fake accounts already. The sheer number of people using Facebook in Europe is more than in the United States. Plus, Mm. it's 28 countries with 24 official languages. So if we think it's difficult to sort out real accounts from fake accounts, real stories from fake ones in the United States, think of the challenge of doing this in Europe. The more I read about these efforts and the more I think about it, I really think we need like a pro-democracy anti-Russia interference propaganda campaign like they did in World War II, like the loose-lipped sink ships. We need designers, really great graphic designers, coming up with campaigns to make people understand this is not just a news story. This is stuff you are going to see in your life, and you have to develop the skills. It is your patriotic duty to develop the skills to sort some of this out. I really think Facebook should be doing this. It shouldn't just be that you are removing the bad content. It's that you should be working to educate your users to know the difference. I mean, it's like if you read something that's like, oh, my God, how could that be true? How could anybody think that? Well, maybe they don't. Maybe they're Russians. Like, I think everybody needs to start working on those skills. This is an act of war, in my opinion. This is the wartime skills that we all need right now. One of the things that Russia is doing currently in in a big way is trying to convince people that 5G gives you cancer, that 5G Mm -hmm. does all kinds of horrible things to you. That plays on some of our most base instincts, right? We love stories that say, here's this thing that you thought was safe. It's not. And I think you're right, Sarah, that Facebook, if Facebook really wants to help combat these problems, A really healthy way to do that would be to make interesting content that helps you identify Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. stories that you should be skeptical of. It does not have to be partisan. It can it can lead with questions like, does this seem designed to make you feel fear? A list of questions. What is the author's purpose here? It reminds me of homework that Jane does right now about learning to read persuasive writing and figure out where right. it's coming from. Critical analysis. Facebook shows me things I don't care about all the time, but they are very well designed and they capture my attention. They could absolutely make a big difference by creating some of that content and pushing it out. Yeah, I just don't think that it is their job to only be on the defensive. I think they need to be on the offensive at this point because you owe everyone a duty. You have a responsibility because you slept on the job and let your platform be exploited. And so you can't just do what you should have been doing three, four years ago and call it enough. You need to be doing more to undo the damage from your absence at the wheel in the previous elections. Well, and I would also say I get the complexity for Facebook. I get that you don't want to have the power of choosing what people see and what they don't see. Great. If you want this to continue to be as free and open and fair as possible, help your user self-police. Like, it is not free to be online if you have 2.8 billion fake accounts coming at you with fake information. That's not freedom either. Maybe it feels free because no one's regulating the information, but you're being inundated with this content, right? And so take the bull behind the horns and say, let me empower you to be good consumers of what you're seeing here. 
We always compliment the other side before we move on. Sarah, who would you like to compliment today? I'm going to compliment the Republican efforts to recruit more female and minority candidates. There's an AP article talking about these efforts, which, I mean, are mainly driven at electoral successes and taking back the House and just feeling shame at the fact that they only have 13 women in their caucus, which they should. But listen, beggars can't be choosers, and I'm happy that they're doing anything to acknowledge this is a problem and to go out and recruit more diverse candidates. I would like to compliment some state Democrats in Pennsylvania, Senators Katie Muth, Senator Sharif Street, and Representative Chris Robb. They are in their respective chambers introducing legislation to repeal the death penalty in Pennsylvania and making the argument, as we have shared on the podcast before, that the death penalty is ineffective as a criminal deterrent, that it is extraordinarily expensive, and that it's flawed in its application. And I was delighted to see this and hope it moves forward in Pennsylvania. Next up, we are going to be talking about several recent stories regarding development, infrastructure, spending, and companies, and fraud in rural America. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is Bake from Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Senator Elizabeth Warren, who can I just say is like winning the hard work primary. I don't see anybody working it like Senator Warren. She went to Kermit, West Virginia last week. Kermit is a town of 400 people. In 2016, there was a Pulitzer Prize winning report detailing how a wholesale pharmaceutical company, actually multiple pharmaceutical companies, were flooding a particular pharmacy in Kermit with opioids. There were 30,000 pills sent to Kermit that year per resident. That's outrageous. It is outrageous. And so there have been lawsuits in the wake of that, but the community has been forever altered. We're going to put a link in the show notes where you can read about the devastating effects of that year on Kermit. And Senator Warren went there to a town of 400 people. She spoke to an audience of 150 people, which I imagine was tiny for her and huge for Kermit to host Mm -hmm. an event like that. She was there to talk about her plan to combat opioids. She has a plan to spend about $100 billion by community. Her plan would say, where has this epidemic hit communities the hardest? Let's allocate funds to local authorities, not to states. She explicitly wants to bypass state governments and put federal dollars directly in communities for them to formulate plans specific to their communities to help with this problem. And this got Sarah and I thinking and talking about rural America and how challenging it is to solve problems. And there are many within rural America. And there are a couple of recent stories, one from our home state of Kentucky that we want to talk about. But first, let's talk about what we mean when we say rural America, because that's part of the challenge here. So one in five Americans lives on a farm. It's about 60 million people and the median age is 43. Now, many of these stories, including the one from Kermit, including about our internet development in Kentucky and the story in the New York Times about the coding camp in West Virginia. These are dealing with Appalachia, and it is very important to distinguish this particular area of not only our state, but the country. It's a very different part of the country, and it's hard to explain if you've never been there. If you're picturing acres of farmland, that ain't it. This is a mountainous region with a lot of secluded, what, what they call haulers. <laughs> what I think so interesting, and this is true of a lot of areas of the South, but particularly Appalachia, you have ancestry that was really primarily Scot-Irish coming over in the early 1800s. This was a group that was persecuted in Britain and highly distrustful of government and authorities. And so, you know, the sort of cultural narrative is that group settled in the mountains and have remained highly distrustful of outsiders and government. It became, I think, a, a flashpoint of national attention many times over the years, particularly when Robert F. Kennedy took his sort of poverty tour through Appalachia. 
And you still see it bubble up in these stories with we're going to go to this area of the country and we're going to change it and we're going to save these people. And there's just an inherent disconnect and an inherent entitlement to these narratives that, as we're going to talk about later, are exploitive and and almost deliberately ignorant of the challenges this region faces. And even defining the geographic region precisely is difficult. If you Mm -hmm. look at different maps of what is supposed to be Appalachia, people would disagree about those. The culture is not homogenous. There is a strong culture, but there is diversity within that culture. There Mm -hmm. is a language itself. My husband and I were reading an article over the weekend about the Appalachian vernacular, and I had never thought about this, but it pointed out that some of the language in Appalachia tends to mirror like Shakespearean English because there's mm-hmm. been so little outside influence mm-hmm. that words like afeard are still used. And there's interest in preserving that culture because it's it's a part of our history. And so a lot of outside efforts to get into Appalachia really misunderstand, as you said, Sarah, so well, what's going on there and where the interest and culture and kind of feelings about politics are sourced. So Appalachia, totally different from rural Midwest, totally Mm -hmm. different from like upstate New York. I mean, it's there is not one definition of rural America that picks up all of the different people and challenges that we're dealing with economically. Agriculture is important, but it is not the whole of the problem. Manufacturing is important and not the whole of the problem. The Roanoke Times reported um, recently in analyzing Bernie Sanders' plan for rural America, which it said is too vague to actually be a plan right now. <laughs> and and John Delaney mentioned this on our show, too. In 2017, 81% of venture capital went to five cities in the United States, San Francisco, New York, Boston, San Jose, and Los Angeles in that order. So infusion of capital is one issue. It's just a door that's closed to rural America right now. Education is a door. The State Council for Higher Education in Virginia reported last year that 99% of the jobs in Virginia went to workers with more than a high school diploma. So that is a challenge for certain regions of the country. And as we're going to share with you, there has been an effort by governments, by nonprofit organizations, and by for-profit organizations to come into Appalachia and address issues of education and of economic stimulation. And the results haven't always been great. I think you can see this narrative in so many areas of our country and in our history over the last few years. And it's going to pop up in these parts of the country as well. And that is, you know, the internet will save us, right? If venture capital is the key to our economic future, then technology is a huge piece of that puzzle. And so technology infrastructure is the most important component of our economic development. And so in Kentucky, you saw this in the mid-90s. They were starting to do strategic plans and visions about this this highway, this internet highway, and these loops that would loop through Kentucky and connect the state through high-speed internet access, and that it would provide a path of economic development to all of the state, but particularly poor areas like Appalachia. 
We had some initial successes during that period. Kentucky schools were the first in the nation to be connected to the Internet via a deal that the state struck with AT&T. There was a particular community in Kentucky that invested a lot of money into broadband, and it brought some call centers to that area. Now, it takes a while for the effects of that to be seen, but it did add jobs to the region. It did boost their economy. And then we decided, let's blow out those efforts as big as we possibly can across the state. Everybody loves to scale. It's everybody's favorite words. Mm. So it did have bipartisan support. So on the Republican side, it was being promoted and fueled by Hal Rogers. Now, Hal Rogers is not as famous as Mitch McConnell from the state of Kentucky, but he is arguably, if not just as powerful, very, very powerful. He is a long time House of Representative member from Eastern Kentucky, and he has been the chair of the Appropriation Committee, although not now because they're not the majority, for decades. He's 81 years old. He's been around for a very long time. And so he was on the Republican side, and our Democratic governor before Matt Bevin, Steve Bashir, was on, on the Democratic side of the aisle pushing this bipartisan effort called Kentucky Wired that would have the state build its own internet system and basically move away from renting the system through AT&T. So we're going to get away from this, this renting the system from AT&T, and the money we will save, we're going to invest in this big private-public partnership to bring internet to the entire state. This was structured like a mortgage. So the state of Kentucky did a deal with an Australian investment bank called Macquarie Capital. Macquarie and its partners would build out and operate an internet system. Kentucky would pay them to use that system at costs that were maybe a little bit higher than what we were paying AT&T, but not a lot. And then at the end of 30 years, Kentucky would own the system itself. That made a lot of sense. When I first read this, I thought, I get why everybody was excited Mm -hmm. about this idea. Yes. And the money was supposed to come from money that we were already paying to telecoms to use their equipment. So it was only supposed to cost Kentucky $330 million to build. And that $330 million was supposed to dramatically stimulate the economy across rural Kentucky communities that really needed that. Then they thought they would also make money from revenue by giving the network access to third parties. So we'll lay out this fiber to basically basically businesses and specific areas, and then third parties can come in, pull the fiber further out, and they'll pay for that excess, and then Kentucky will be getting that money instead of AT&T. Like, I get the appeal. I totally get the appeal. We should also say at this point that we are leaning heavily on the amazing reporting of ProPublica, who did a really great story on this, and we'll be linking to that in the show notes. ProPublica is doing fantastic work in Kentucky all around. I mean, they do great work everywhere, but they have gone into such detail about the state of Kentucky over the past few months, and I'm really grateful for it. And they're in a partnership with the Courier-Journal, right? Yes. I think that's right. Mm -hmm. So let's just tell you where we are today. About a third of the 3,000 miles of fiber optic cable that was supposed to be installed has been installed. We're not sure exactly where that is. And if it is new fiber optic cable, like reaching communities that actually didn't have Internet access before, or if it's in places that duplicate cable that was already laid by the private sector, because Internet access across the state varies dramatically. Where I live in northern Kentucky, you have a pretty good choice of Internet providers. The service is great. I can get you know, high-speed internet access easily 
everywhere I go. When I go visit my parents, it is a totally different story. This is also because private companies with existing fiber lines, this is considered a closely held trade secret. So we don't know if we're duplicating with private industry because they can keep that information secret. I think this is bullshit personally, because at this point, what we're talking about, we've talked about this on the show before, is that this kind of infrastructure, access to the Internet is way more of a utility than it is a private service. And so we need to start regulating the industry like that and saying you can't keep this information secret. It's like saying telling the electric company they can keep where their electric lines are secret. That's bananas. So we're about a third of the way into the cable that's actually supposed to be installed. We're behind schedule. Also, this was supposed to cost $330 million. It's going to cost more like $1.5 billion, more than 50 times what taxpayers were promised. Part of that is because some of the vision of this just isn't materializing. The state school system, for example, was supposed to transfer its business to Kentucky Wired instead of AT&T. That hasn't happened for some good reasons. Kentucky Wired is not really ready to go. There are concerns by state employees that Kentucky Wired isn't going to be reliable, that there's not a call center to troubleshoot issues. Because the project is so behind schedule, our ability for the state government to use Kentucky Wired and direct those dollars that are going out to other telecoms just isn't happening. Well, and they did. It's, it's so classic. So they had way too short of a timeline. And they needed to do things like, oh, I don't know, get an agreement from every single company that owns every single electric pole, utility pole, to hang the wire. Well, guess who owns the poles? AT&T, whose business you're going to take away to build your own Internet infrastructure. Who didn't see this conflict coming? And they had a really shortened timeline for how long it was going to take them to go and get these poll agreements on all like 12,000 plus utility poles. They were supposed to do it in like... A month, and it took seven. So, it's you know, it's sort of classic there, as we say um, in my neck of the woods. I don't know how many areas of the neck of the woods they say this in, but their eyes got bigger than their stomach, right? They were like, oh, this sounds great. This is going to be great. We're going to do it. We don't really need to be honest about the fact that things could go wrong and this could cost more than we expect it to cost, and it could take longer than we expect it to take because then we maybe couldn't sell it the way we want to sell it. See our previous conversation in the first segment. And this is a public-private partnership in which the public constituency took on all of the risks of the project, Mm -hmm. really. Anything goes wrong like that poll issue Sarah was just talking about. Kentucky's on the hook for that. So we have an administration now in Kentucky that isn't speaking very clearly on Kentucky Wired. Matt Bevin comes into office. He says, this is big government. It's the epitome of what I hate about government. It's a boondoggle. We shouldn't do anything with it. Then Hal Rogers talks to Matt Bevin. (laughs) I would love to have been at that meeting. Mm -hmm. And there are issues with Hal Rogers and his, his control in Kentucky as well. He says he leans on Bevin and whatever takes place in that conversation changes Bevin's tune a little bit. But Bevin also has hired an old army friend of his named Chuck Grindle to advise him on Kentucky's IT at a salary of $375,000 a year. The highest salary in like the entire freaking state. And Chuck Grindle thinks this project is terrible and says so publicly pretty often. So especially at AT AT&T conferences where he's hosted for free. Yes. So I don't think so. Lots of issues about a public private effort that began 
as a seemingly great idea with bipartisan support to bring the internet to the entire Commonwealth. So hold on to that as we talk about another effort that the New York Times reported on in West Virginia. So this is in Beckley, West Virginia, which holds a very special place in my heart because it was the halfway point between my husband in North Carolina and me in Kentucky when we were in a long-distance relationship. So I really love the people of Beckley, and this article made me furious because they were completely and totally exploited. So minded minds – no, mind. Mind minds, which is going to be difficult to say going forward in this segment, is a nonprofit group. And they had this model. I remember seeing so many articles about this. We're going to go in and we're going to teach the miners of Appalachia how to code. So for 16 weeks, you get free coding boot camp followed by paid apprenticeships with their for-profit arm, and then, which was a software consulting company. And then once you have the apprentices who can help teach classes and they also then go get these guaranteed salary jobs, you're, everybody's going to find a job. It's going to be great. So that this organization got a $1.5 million grant from the Appalachian Regional Commission. Senator Joe Manchin encouraged them to come to West Virginia from Pennsylvania. But once it got started, first of all, people thought they would be able to get paid for going to the classes because they were it was a full-time job, basically, to go to these classes, and people were quitting their work. The classes weren't paid. Not only were they not paid, they weren't structured. People were being told, oh, just Google the answer. People were being constantly fired from the paid apprenticeships within the company. They seemed like they were looking for reasons to fire people. It was a less than professional environment generally. And it was just, there. you know, as my friend Herbie says, they were selling dreams. That's what they were doing, selling dreams. Out of 10 people who made it to the end of the class in Beckley, because the class went on longer than 16 weeks and people just started to run out of money. They couldn't afford to be Mm -hmm. unemployed for that long. So 10 people made it to the end. Only one person actually graduated, and that person is now delivering takeout. The jobs just did not materialize. And this article made me so sad because people are really not all that surprised that this Mm -hmm. happened. It seems like a theme. Folks come in selling dreams, as you said, Sarah. And if it seems too good to be true, it is. And it almost always leaves them holding the bag in these communities. Well, and then what happens? Then they say, oh, well, now I have even more reason to be distrustful of outsiders. And then the companies come in and say, well, we couldn't do anything because they were distrustful of outsiders. I mean, and this goes way, way back. One of the people in these articles were cited as talking about their grandfather selling the mineral rights to his land for pennies. And then the mining companies came in, not only took the land for way less than it was worth. They exploit the land, blow the mountaintops off, leave pollution, and then exploit the bodies of the miners themselves by lying for decades about the effects of mining and black lung. So you have this long history of this area of the country and its people being exploited by corporate interests. And so then you have someone come in, basically sell the dream of, we're going to do right by you, We're going to we acknowledge that what's been done to you in the past has been wrong and we're going to do right by you. And then they do it all over again. And Sarah's referenced a less than professional environment, adding insult to injury here. The founder of Mind Minds has an office in Trump Tower in Chicago. She hired her brother and sister to teach in West Virginia. And there is a very expensive and serious party culture in this organization. People who were in these apprenticeships felt like, well, if I go hang out and drink with these folks, I'll be in with them and then I'll be able to get the good jobs. 
And instead, there's this this heartbreaking story of this woman who spent $1,000 to go on an international trip with Mind Mind Leadership, and she was fired while she was on the trip because she got drunk like everybody else, and they said that she had engaged in extreme harassment. So we've talked about Kermit, where you have the pharmaceutical industry exploiting a town to the physical and economic detriment of the town. We have Kentucky, where we had what seemed like a fantastic idea to everybody. And it's gone way south and Kentucky taxpayers are going to be left holding the bag. And we have West Virginia with this coding program that I'm, I I think we might have even talked on the podcast about how exciting this was that this was getting mm-hmm. started. And it has turned out to be exploitative and not delivered on its promise. Lots of solutions are directed at these communities that have not helped and in some cases made the problems even worse. So we have high mortality rates, we have high rates of depression, we have an aging population in most of these sections of the country, and then we have, as we've talked about at the beginning, vastly different cultures. And I want you to understand that even in Kentucky, Sarah and I were talking before we started, where Sarah lives in western Kentucky, completely different culture than the part of western Kentucky I grew up in, completely different geography, completely different access to natural resources, And then both of those places are nothing like where my husband grew up, which is a little bit south of Lexington around Lake Cumberland. And none of those places are anything like northern Kentucky where I live now. And Lexington, Louisville, both really distinct, far southeast Kentucky, a whole different ballgame. You cannot direct solutions at Kentucky And in any way, understand the complexity of implementing those solutions without really understanding the state. For me, it's two things. It's the desire for a quick and easy solution. I think that Steve Bashir and Hal Rogers wanted the right thing, which was good Internet access for Kentucky to spur economic development. But, you know, it reminds me so much of the book I read about the occupation of Iraq, which is nobody wants to be honest with the taxpayers about what this type of project costs and how long it will take. Everybody's selling. Nobody's being honest. And for better or for worse, I do think The public holds some of the responsibility here because, you know, it's self-perpetuating in a way. You're not honest with us, so we don't feel like we can trust you with the taxpayer dollars. So they don't feel like they can be honest about the cost and taxpayer dollars because they all they know they're going to hear is it costs too much and we don't want to pay taxes. And I don't really know the answer to that. I think the accelerant or the hyper corrosive factor on top of that is corruption and corporate influence. That's what I see as a strand running through both of these stories, running through the long history of exploitation in Appalachia, which is you have a aging, largely poor, mostly undereducated population with nobody with the resources or the organization capacity 
to go up against these corporate interests. That is not to say there is not organizing in Eastern Kentucky. Some of the best, strongest nonprofit grassroots organizations in the state of Kentucky come out of that region Mm -hmm. of our state. No doubt. But it's like there's just no match for it, especially when you have our political leadership so closely aligned with the corporate interest. And it's just infuriating. There has to be a solution to the corrosive impact of all these corporate dollars, be they the coal industry, be they the telecom industry, be they the tech industry. Everybody's looking the second there is a pile of money related to this part of the country to how they get their cut and get out. And I think part of it is because everybody's telling this part of the country what they need instead of listening to what they need. There are parts of what you just said that I really strongly agree with and parts that I disagree with. The disagreement for me comes in identifying corporate America as the sole problem. I think it has been a huge part of it or even the leading part of the problem. Because, for example, I don't think AT&T has screwed the state of Kentucky over. I think the partnership that we developed with AT&T to get Internet in all of our schools has worked really well. I think corporate America has many times exploited these regions. I also think that they have to be part of the solution. I mean, part of what we're always asking for is more industry to come into these communities and create jobs. But because that goes wrong so often... What I'm coming to, and the reason that I think nonprofits in Appalachia particularly that are so successful have created that success is because most of them really understand that solutions in these communities have to come from these communities. Outsiders, whether they are public or private actors, are not successful. People do not have the patience to understand the cultures. The cultures themselves are not interested in outside influence in a very deep way, because of all the reasons that we've been talking about, there is a mistrust there. And so the solutions have to come from the communities themselves, which leads me to what I think is a really difficult question. You could blame the decline of lots of these communities, the aging of the communities, the physical health declines, the economic declines on brain drain. The fact that so many people who aspire to leadership in any sector, public, private, or otherwise, leave the communities to get educated and they never come back. There are economists who would say, that's right. And in fact, what we need is more mobility out of these areas because the country is never going to be able to make the dramatic investments required to get their infrastructure moving, to get these economies going, that environmentally it wouldn't be desirable to do so even if we could, that cities are really the future. So there are folks who would say that brain drain is actually a good thing and what we need is more of it, not less. There are other people who would say these communities are really important. They need to be preserved and they won't be if everybody leaves. I can envision solutions to these problems from both the private and the public perspective that target either trying to keep more people in these communities or move more people out of them. I truly don't know what the right answer is. I think my struggle with the private-public partnership is 
not to say that there have not been successful private-public partnership, but I just don't know how you balance one organization that is meant legally obligated to make a profit and one that is legally obligated not to make a profit. I think that's a really hard balance. Now, to your other question, I think that there is a way to do that. I don't, I don't think partnership is the right way. I think what we did right in the 20th century is what Kentucky Wired was trying to get at, which is government comes in and makes the investment on the infrastructure and the development that allows private economic development to flourish. But I don't think that in the past that's been a place for other people, for the private industry to profit. It's we're just going to invest. We're not looking for a return on our money. The return will come through the private economy, not through tax dollars or not to a private company who just did us a solid. You know, I, and I think with regards to your question, I think it's hugely important There's a really great article I read a few months ago, and I will try to find it and put in the show notes, that basically made the argument that the government for decades invested in less developed parts of the country, not just rural America, but these mid-sized cities, so that there wasn't what we have now, which is just a growing gap where you see those investment statistics like the ones we cited at the beginning of the segment about venture capital. The government stepped up and said, you're not going to leave other areas of the country behind. And so they did things like invest in airports in Paducah. We still have an airport in Paducah that is largely supported by federal dollars. And so they, they, they worked on that infrastructure. They worked on that connectivity. They worked on education dollars. So the brain drain didn't feel like everybody's individual sacrifice, I think it was we, we came together as a nation and decided, you know, it's, it's a diversification just like you would have in a stock portfolio. Do we really want the future of our country to rest on the success of L.A., New York, and San Francisco? I don't think so. I think that it's much healthier to see a broad-based development across mid-sized cities, across micropolitans, and across rural communities. That's not going to happen if we just look at everybody born in those areas of the country and say, do the right thing, stay home, or do the right thing, move home. It has to be an investment from the country that says, we value a broad base of communities, and we're going to invest and make sure they don't get left behind. Because when we stop doing that, and when we said every man for itself, and sort of made it largely driven by these quote-unquote private-public partnerships or private industry totally and completely, well, yeah, this is what happens. And I think that's also contributed to the growing gap of the growing gap between the rich and the poor, the income inequality we see. I think that you have to acknowledge that with a changing economy, the government's going to have to step in and fill some of the gaps from for some geographic areas in our country. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. 
They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Sarah, I am acknowledging that. No, I'm just saying the royal we, not you. Yeah, I mean, I am acknowledging that. And what I want to be acknowledged on the other side is that, yes, the government has to come in and be part of the solution, but the government has been part of the problem as well. One of the main issues with Kentucky Wired right now, and ProPublica is doing a great job reporting on this, is that there are individual currencies. Profit motive, yes, drives people to some very bad decisions sometimes. The currency of politics does too. Matt Bevan and Hal Rogers and Steve Bashir, different parties, different perspectives, hugely different individual personalities. 
All of those guys had motivations that were not purely altruistic. We're seeing around the hiring of Matt Bevan's friend some issues where individuals set out to profit in the political space as well. And so I think we have to acknowledge that government power carries some difficult incentives as well. We can't always trust those incentives to get things right. It also carries issues like an administration change in the middle of a decades-long project, because a lot of these projects cannot be even well-started while one person is in office. On a federal level, you see that with a lot of what the Obama administration tried to start. Then you have a political change and boom, everything switches over. And so finding solutions that carry real stability, I think it's always going to take, yes, the government and some other partners. And some of those partners are going to be private industry where there's a profit motive because as bad as the incentives are connected to a profit motive sometimes, they also actually motivate people to get stuff done and actually motivate people to put in more money. It is a complex mix of things. And where I think something really important can happen is in ensuring that communities have elected leadership at the local level to protect their interest in a more stable way. Like, I love what Elizabeth Warren is saying about putting this opioid money directly into communities. So how can we help those communities have good local leadership that can come out swinging when they see the actions of corporate or state and federal political actors carrying them in the wrong direction? What I would say is it's not that I disagree with you, but when I look at how Rogers and Steve Bashir and Matt Bevin, I don't see the corrupting influence of government. I see the corrupting influence of corporate dollars in government. I'm going to start sounding a lot like Bernie Sanders here for a second. But it's those donations. It's that corporate money. It's the industry influence. To me, that's the corrupting influence, not just power for power's sake. I mean, I look back at LBJ and I think about that story and I think about that He did that. Now, did he do it to increase his own political power? Absolutely. But that's only because he wanted to get more and more done for his constituents. I'm not saying LBJ is a saint. He wasn't. But you see, like the LBJ was lobbying FDR to get electricity out into his constituents, not because he was BFF with the dude laying the lines. You know, like I just there it was different. And I think that when I see that area of the country Yeah, I think they absolutely need better local representation and better congressional representation. But it's like it's such an uphill battle because the second they do, it's going to be industry who has the access to them. It's going to be industry who's going to be using their corporate dollars to flow and influence them and their and advocate for their priorities and their profit margin. And it's just it's rife for exploitation, I think. And that's just my concern. It's not that I don't think that. Profit motives are bad. I don't know that it's ever worked well when it comes to tax dollar resources to invest in infrastructure. I mean, I guess somebody's got the somebody gets the road contract at the end of the day. But as a local, a former local official, I love Elizabeth Warren's idea, and I still think you're going to be so you're going to be so. And look, this might be an ad, this might be an argument for what you're saying. Even as a local official, I think what happens a lot is there's a pot of federal money on the table. And so people are like, we got to spend it. And sometimes they don't have the resources or the expertise to know how best to spend it. You even see that with Kentucky Wired, I think. You see like, oh, well, there's money on the table or with definitely with mind minds. There's money on the table. We better spend it. We better some we want to get it. We want to get to it. And 
if you don't have the the tie-in and the investment of the state government, which is going to control so much of how you can tax and how you can spend, much less the federal government that's going to control so much of how you can tax and how you can spend and all this stuff. You know, that's what, like, again, you see that in Kentucky Wired. Like, they wanted to do the right thing and use the Kentucky schools. It wasn't just that Kentucky Wired wasn't up to the task yet. It was also that there were federal restrictions. And so I just... I think it sounds great to just empower the local government, and I think that's hugely important. But without some of the the real buy-in and correct priorities, mainly the people and not corporate interest at the state and federal level, you're still going to have a lot of problems. It's just hard, though, because the people are fickle, too. I mean, you see this in local government Mm -hmm. where you don't have the corporate investment of dollars as the primary motivator. I think most people who serve in local government get in and really want to do a good job. And then the people vote them out of office for who knows why, largely because of federal issues. Right. Like who knows Mm -hmm. why people get lose their local elections who are doing a great job. And some of the people who hang on to their seats in local politics do so in very manipulative ways that have nothing to do with money. That is about power for power's sake. So they're always thinking about what's happening with the next election. And I think that this comes back to what we always talk about in terms of gas and brakes. It is a complex set of problems not rooted in any one space. And so the solutions are going to require a complex interplay of constituencies with varying motivators so that they keep one another in check. And I think that what the stories that we've highlighted today show is that even when it seems like you're on a really great path, There are so many roadblocks that can come up and engaging more directly with the people who are going to be affected by this would probably help identify those roadblocks earlier. What's on your mind outside of politics, Sarah? You're going to be mad at me, but it's Game of Thrones. I'm so mad. Okay, that's not really true. Let me let me add in some additional context, too. So I spent Mother's Day watching Wine Country and Someone Great, which were two really great female directed, female written girlfriend flicks. Loved them. Positive was all in. There's a Brene Brown cameo in Wine Country, which is Amy Poehler's directorial debut. So good. Then I get excited i'm not even excited anymore can i just be real they're just screwing it up left and right i wasn't even excited i put on instagram let's see if they can turn this sink and ship around the answer no it's two male showrunners they are basically making the beloved female character look like a crazy lady and it's really making me mad it just feels like there's no female person in the room. There's no person of color in the room to say, hey, guys, this is not going to read how you think it's going to read. Do we have any concerns about that? And it's it's just really frustrating me. It's very frustrating me. I feel like they're robbing me of an experience I was very much looking forward to after eight years of watching their dang show. Should have known better considering their portrayals of women leading up to this point. But I'm eternal optimist when it comes to pop culture. What can I say? I'm just frustrated. I'm not mad at you. I don't watch it. I don't begrudge anyone else watching it, though. I understand. I feel very left out, actually, because I understand that this is something people are doing collectively. Okay, I have a question for you about this because I anticipated that this would be your outside of politics segment. Do you think it is possible here in 2019 to end a beloved series in a way that people feel good about? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 
Like, I look back, I was happy with the ending of Friday Night Lights. I was happy with the ending of Mad Men. I mean, I might have been a little bit in the minority, but I was happy with the ending of that show. I like the ending of Breaking Bad. Like, I think it's absolutely doable. Now, does that mean everybody is going to love it? Uh, well, no. Never. Right. But can you do it and do it well? Yeah. With totally. like a majority positive review. That's yeah. what I'm wondering. I think so. I think so. The consensus seems to be, and I have never really leaned on the people who read the book for Game of Thrones because I'm never going to read the book for Game of Thrones. Books. But the consensus seems to be that the showrunners made a choice to condense sort of the ending. So they got out in front of the books, right? So the show got to the point where he had not written, George R.R. R. Martin had not written the books. And HBO, I think, looked at them and said, we'll give you as much time as you need. But they wanted to wrap it up because they're writing the Star Wars movies. Get forward for the, get ready for that as they destroy your beloved uh, thing. What's the word I want? Serial? Series? Universe? I don't know. But they're writing the next three Star Wars movies. Ugh. And so I think they just were wrapping it up. And so they're they're pushing the plot and not earning the character development seems to be the consensus on the Internet. And so they're just they're making it all happen too fast. It's unearned after spending so much time with these characters and feeling like you knew them and you knew what motivated them. And now they're like, just kidding. She's crazy. Bitch. It's just annoying. It's really annoying. And it feels disrespectful to the audience who's invested so much time with these characters. I think this timeline is so fascinating. When Chad talks about Game of Thrones, what interests me most is this idea that the books aren't complete and the series yeah. is going to be complete. I think it's just bananas. Yeah, it is. I think they should have just, I don't know. I would. They were making us wait forever anyway. Why not make us wait for the books? I don't know. I mean, George R.R. R. Martin is a producer on the show, so in theory, they've talked to him, right? But I don't know. What's on your mind outside of politics? We are recording on my 12th wedding anniversary. So okay. happy anniversary, Chad. I was saying to him, I realize that this is like our senior year of high school, kind of, and like if you make an equivalent between how long you're married and how long you're in school. And I do feel like we're just kind of getting the hang of this thing. <laughs> like, we're kind of getting our marriage legs under us. We've figured out a lot of things. We're very happy. We're enjoying each other. We've we've learned each other's conflict styles, right? And we're better at arguing than we were in the beginning. And it's just nice. It's nice to be in that space where you're reflecting on this first part of your life together and realizing that it'll ebb and flow and have lots of different evolutions. But it's been a really wonderful 12 years filled with learning and I love kind of thinking of marriage as this lifelong learning process. I love being married. I really do. My husband and I are what we, in what we call a renaissance of our love. It's just a stage. Like what you're describing, we're like, I dig you. It might not last forever, but right now, I really dig you. I celebrated this weekend by cleaning my house for about six hours. And <laughs> I... But my children were with their grandparents, so I was able to listen to podcasts for that whole time, which was amazing. Because usually when I clean, I have visions of listening to podcasts, and what happens is, mommy, mommy, mommy. And so I binge listened to This Is Love. Have you listened to those podcasts at all? Is that the one from Criminal? Yes, it's the from Criminal. Crimin yeah, I've yeah. listened to a couple of them. It's a couple of years old now. I just started at the beginning, and I listened to a bunch. I really enjoyed it. The production of it is a little affected for me, but the stories were so good. I loved there was a story about a woman who was out in the ocean. She was a great swimmer. She feels something underneath her, 
and it's a night swim, so she can't see anything, but she knows there's something underneath her. What? So she there's starts in the ocean at night. So she starts Ugh. swimming toward the shore, and the thing keeps coming with her. And there's a guy on a lighthouse who sees her and tells her she needs to go back out because it's a baby whale that's been separated <gasps> from its mother. And so I'm sorry to spoil the episode, but it's been out a couple of years. Listen, if you want to hear it, go ahead and find it. But she swims with it for five hours to keep it safe until all of these commercial fishermen help find the mother and they get them back together. It was so beautiful. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was so beautiful. But I loved that This Is Love explored so many different kinds of love in so many different contexts. So that was a, a really nice way to think about my own love and the larger love in the world this weekend. Well, that is a great transition to how we wanted to end the episode. And this is a dedication to sisterly love. We wanted to dedicate this episode to Carrie. Her sister wrote us that they were lifelong political junkies. Their mother took them to see the attend the Watergate hearings, which I think is amazing, when they were 11 and 13 years old. Carrie is the one who found our podcast and introduced it to Irene, and they had two years of listening faithfully and calling one each other to discuss. My favorite part is she says, we even bought Rothy shoes together. But sadly, her sweet sister Carrie died from breast cancer in December of 2018 at the age of 55. And so she wrote us to just say thank you. It was the most lovely email, and we wanted to dedicate this episode to Carrie and her sister Irene. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your ears on Friday when we are going to be bringing you this was Sarah's idea, Sarah at PantsyPoliticsShow.com. It wasn't just my idea. They've been emailing. The people have been emailing. We're going to bring you five things you need to know about abortion law on Friday, followed by a discussion of what's going on in Georgia. Which is going to just be the sound of me banging my head on the table. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Oh, man. So we'll be back with you then on The Nuanced Life on Wednesday. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.